Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, September 11th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Right now we are here once again on Wednesday morning with our friend Truthvids to present part 52 of his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. Discussing our presentation of Proof 63, Proof 63, in our series, last week as we presented Part 51, our interpretation of the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, we asserted as a fact that the Emperor Justinian is that little horn. The proofs of that should be beyond dispute. Now we shall correlate that prophecy with the prophecy of the two beasts found in Revelation chapter 13. As we have already hoped to have demonstrated here, once the identity of these empires and beasts found in these prophecies from Daniel and the Revelation are established, there should be no doubt that the white nations of Christian Europe are the descendants of the ancient Israelites, who were certainly also white. Good morning, Truthreads. Thank you for being here. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, yeah, so here we're going to continue uh, on the little horn, right? And it's all about how the, the Pope would begin to rise and the Catholic Church would begin to rule over us. And, and many people simply aren't aware of this, right? Because... They've cleverly hit it and, and they come up with all this propaganda and all multiple different versions and stories. Uh, all seems to come from the um, Jews, basically. They're the ones generally invent it or Jesuit priests. Uh, but but it shows if you understand this, you, you realize that Christianity has never been right. That um, I, I always get YouTube comments asking me, you know, do, do you follow Catholicism, Orthodox or Protestant? And the answer is simply none of them, right? That if people realize that we never should have had a universal church, that it's always been wrong, then a lot of people would understand what, what's going on, right? And that we are the true Israelites, essentially. It's it's all down to these perverse uh, teachings, right, Bill? Well, absolutely. The formation of the so-called universal church didn't happen until after the 4th century, 400 years after the time of Christ. And even then, once the church was organized in the time of Constantine the Great, the church was organized from a collection of what were supposed to be, because this is what the apostles left behind. The apostles left behind independent Christian churches or assemblies. Assembly is the proper word in various cities throughout the Roman world, which were never intended to be united under a single government or, or a single umbrella organization. That's not what the apostles left behind. The independent bishops of each assembly were the heads of their own assembly and had no power or authority outside of their own assembly. Those bishops were ordained by the assembly itself, not by some outside authority.
that word that's translated as ordained in the King James Version of the Bible is actually often from a word, kairotonio, the Greek verb kairotonio, which means to elect. And once that's examined, and we have papers at Christogenia which explain that, one being, the primary one being misconceptions concerning Paul and the church. Once we understand the language, the Greek language, which the apostles actually used, language that was corrupted in translation to support the Anglican church and the way that it operated, the original Greek words of the apostles tell a completely different story. The people of each local Christian assembly were to choose their own pastors and their own bishops, if you will, if I should use that term, in order to manage their assembly. And the bishops and the pastors were servants of and answered to the assembly itself. If they taught the assembly properly, according to scripture, they would never have a problem. They should, theoretically, never have a problem. And if they didn't teach the assembly properly, if they taught innovations such as race mixing and and things like that, then it would be the duty of the assembly to remove them from their positions. We don't see that accountability in, in modern Christianity, and all these churches have been corrupted. They were already corrupted by the fourth century, and that word universal the word Catholic, which is defined today as meaning universal, did not originally bear that meaning. Catholic meant something totally different. Catholic in Greek, which is elided into Catholic. Catholic or Catholicus. Holocus is the genitive form, which means of the whole, and kata means according to. So, catacholicus means according to the whole, and it wasn't applied to the subjects of scripture. It was applied in the earliest writings by Irenaeus and Tertullian and Clement of Alexander to the, Alexandria to the scriptures themselves. It simply referred to the reception of the scriptures being of the whole, which meant at the time, since the Marcionites and certain other sects of Christianity rejected the Old Testament because they didn't understand it, and they only accepted portions of the New Testament, and then since the Jews rejected the New Testament scriptures, because they didn't understand it, but clung to the Old Testament scriptures, which they identified with, but which did not belong to them, because the Jews are chiefly Edomites and not Israelites. Well, because we had this division where certain groups accepted only the Old Testament and others only the New Testament, this term, Catholicus, according to the whole, was used to describe the orthodox reception of the faith, receiving of the faith, meaning that they understood that their Christian faith was based upon both Old Testament and New Testament, on both Testaments. 
So that's why they called themselves Catholic. But it had nothing to do with the application of the faith, meaning universal, as the Roman Catholic Church later corrupted the meaning of the term. So that's a digression, but maybe perhaps a necessary one, so that we understand, and and Christians should understand, if they'd actually read and study their Bibles. When I say read, that's one thing, but studying means to dig in to the meanings of words, to understand how the apostles use them. There's a lot more to studying than mere reading. If Christians actually read and studied their Bibles, they would understand that the Roman Catholic Church was corrupted, and that it was corrupted right from the beginning. The Council of Nicaea did not truly practice or teach the Christianity of the apostles. And it only got worse from there. Yeah, and I think the more um, power the popes got, uh, the, the easier it was for Jews to ultimately corrupt and gain control, right? Because once they infiltrated it, they essentially gained the same powers as the popes, right? Because a lot of the uh, kind of from a thousand uh, eighty onwards or around that time, a lot of them were Medici's, etc. And they could uh, use their influence and power to corrupt all the other bishops and gain complete, almost complete power over Europe, right? Yes, and that period went on for several hundred years, which eventually led to the the Reformation. It forced the Reformation. It forced men to want to split from the church because they couldn't reform it. It was it became irreformable under the De Medici's and the Borgias, who who were essentially crime families. They were criminal enterprises. The tenth, the Fifth Lateran Council, Giovanni De Medici, under the pretense of being Pope Leo the Tenth, he actually attempted to forbid Christians from even attaining copies of the scriptures. He had, um, one of the dictates of that council was that no Bible, the printing press was relatively new at that time, was that no Bible could be printed without the permission of the local bishop. Power wasn't completely centralized but he left it to the local bishops to give permission over whether a Bible should be printed or not. And of course, the bishops are going to follow the guidance of Rome in making those decisions. We should probably lay this digression aside because we could talk about it for a long time. In fact, we will talk about it in a proof, in an upcoming proof on, on the two witnesses in the opening of the little book, which we've been speaking about. This is... Proof number 64, it's Daniel chapter 7, still, and the two beasts of Revelation chapter 13. And as we had done in proof number 63, in relation to Daniel chapter 7, here we will also begin to present this subject as it was discussed at length in a paper titled The Little Horn of Daniel Chapter 7, a review of a paper by Clifton Emmeheiser. But of course, now our focus is actually going to be on Revelation chapter 13. Because of the length of Clifton's paper and, and our review of it, our critique of it, basically, and the fact that it addresses other peripheral topics which are not pertinent here. We will only follow it for a couple of paragraphs. Doing this, we will continue to speak of that little horn of Daniel chapter 7, since that 
lays a firm foundation upon which we can interpret Revelation chapter 13. So we're going to resume with this paper where we left off with it at the end of proof number 63. Here Clifton continues to cite his old watchman's teaching letter, which I think was number 12, which in turn continues to cite a book by Howard Rand, which was titled Study in Revelation. Now, as I said, as I explained, I believe, last week, I had problems with study in Revelation. I wouldn't really recommend the book, and I certainly wouldn't recommend it to novices in Christian identity. Rand made the mistake of believing that the Jews were Judah, rather than understanding the implications of the conversions of the Edomites, the mass conversions of the Edomites, which is recorded in the pages of Flavius Josephus, and which is also mentioned, the conversions themselves aren't mentioned, but the fact that the Edomites or Edomians had lived with, together with the Judeans in Judea, and they had all practiced the same laws and customs we see in the pages of Strabo, the geographer, Strabo of Cappadocia. And he attests to that twice in the 16th book of his geography. So, getting back to Clifton and the Howard Rand citation. Then quoting on page 49 from this same book under the subtitle, and that's Clifton's words, Church over State, Rand says, Pope Agapetus, in a dispute with Justinian, the Emperor of the East, won his point, and the emperor yielded to the pope. The head of the church had triumphed over the head of the government. This was 536 AD. A church council assembled at Constantinople this same year and informed the government, as a servant of the church, that an edict be issued ordering a decision of the council executed. So, calling the government a servant of the church, that is how the popes got power over the emperors. Evidently, from this one citation, we could see the attitude that was projected. So Rand continues, and he says, This was done, and thus church and state became united. Persecutions followed, which the church dictated and the state supported. 1,260 years of cruel torture and destruction now followed, resulting in nearly a hundred million dying violent deaths. Now, I would lump things, events such as the Thirty Years' War, into that tally. But note the dates that as a result of Justinian's own laws, the Pope first prevailed over him in 536 AD. Now, we've dated this from 538 to 1789, or from 536 to 1786, but 536 AD is exactly 1,260 years before Napoleon had arrested Pope Pius VI. And Pope Pius VI died in prison in France just a couple of years later. So the dating, it is accurate, but the dates can be argued a couple of years one way or another. It depends on which markers that you choose to use in your exhibition. It's not really that important. We see the 1260 years very clearly 
That's important. So I responded to Clifton's citation with the remark that, of course, not all of the popes were so evil. And at the same time, the Roman Catholic Church did many things which we may consider to be beneficial to Christian society in Europe. And that's absolutely true. But it never ruled according to the laws of God and the gospel of Christ, and it never taught true apostolic Christianity. Rather, the Roman Catholic Church and the portion which became known as the Greek Orthodox Church since the time of the Great Schism, which was 1054 AD, had always been agents of the empire, and they were formed from a mixture of Christianity with the ancient pagan institutions and philosophies of the empire. They were never right from the beginning. Now Clifton continues by expressing a formula. And and let me say first that the Greek Orthodox Church claims legitimacy because some of the cities which the apostles had actually taught in are under the, the purview of the Greek Orthodox Church today or the Eastern Orthodox Church today. That doesn't give them legitimacy. They were married to the Roman Catholic Church and they were subservient to the Roman Catholic Church for 500 years. They're really just an offshoot breakaway of the Roman Catholic Church trying to reclaim any apparent legitimacy that they can. But they're still basically warmed over Roman Catholics, and they're even more idolatrous in many ways than the Roman Catholics are. That's, that could be the subject of a whole nother podcast or a whole nother digression. Now Clifton continues. And, um, even by, the Protestants did the same. Well, like the Anglican Church, right? They just made bishops that the Pope or, you know, under the king, it just increased their power. It was just the same thing, right? Split away and then uh, whoever's left gets even more power than they had previously, right? Well, well right. That's what the Anglican Church basically did, that they appointed bishops who had their allegiance to the king rather than to the pope, and they removed the power of the pope from England and transferred that power to the king. The king in in England is the head, theoretically, right, or, or at least ceremonially, he's the head of the Anglican Church. The true heads of the Anglican Church, I believe, are two bishops, right? The Archbishop of Canterbury being first, and the Archbishop of York being his subservient to him, being sort of the second in command of of the Church of England. I believe that's how that works. Maybe you could correct me. I believe so, and um, I think the Archbishop's a nigger now. Or, or he might have been the last one. Yes, they had a nigger Archbishop of York, I believe, very recently, either right now or very recently. I'll try to search that real quick. I actually wrote on that in in a forum post. John Santamu. A, a doctor, apparently. Yes, a buck-toothed nigger. He was the Archbishop of York. He retired. He would be 72 or 73 years old right now. He's from Uganda. That's the state of the Church of England. 
But now it's Stephen Cantrell, who I've also quoted in articles, and he's no better than the nigger. Stephen Cottrell, I'm sorry. Stephen Cottrell is apparently white, and he's the current Archbishop of York. He was born in England. He's just as bad as the nigger. I, I mean, I don't. I, I cited him in in several podcasts, probably one or two years ago, and he's no better. He may as well be a nigger, even though he's an Englishman. That's another digression. So, as a result of Justinian's own law, the Pope first prevailed over him in 536 AD, and that was exactly 1260 years before Napoleon had arrested Pope Pius VI. Rand had portrayed a very gruesome Roman Catholic Church papacy. However, it wasn't always so bad, and a lot of Roman Catholic popes, especially in the early centuries, and some in the later, were actually beneficial. They actually did some good things. However, they never ruled the church under the instructions of the apostles of Christ or according to the Christianity that the apostles of Christ had left us. So Clifton continues by expressing a formula, and he says 538 A.D. to 1798 A.D. Now, I don't know why Clifton repeated that formula, because the conclusion should be 536 A.D. to 1796 A.D., right? Two years off. But that's okay. We see the spirit of, of the prophecy is there. 538 A.D. to 1798 A.D. equals 1260 years, not three and a half years. Then he says, let's go back to our original scripture of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 24 to 25, and pick up the sentence concerning this period of time. And they shall be, meaning the saints of the Most High, and they shall be given into his hand until a time, and times, and the dividing of time. So, in my critique of this paper, I had responded to this formula, and I said, that is, the saints of the Most High would be given into the hand of this little horn for three and a half times. In summary, Clifton is expressing the concept that the beginning of the papacy, as we know it, was circa 538 AD, and the temporal powers of the Pope in Europe had ended with the French Revolution and the time of Napoleon and his actions against the Pope circa 1798 AD, a period of 1260 years. So now Clifton replies to his formula, and he says, this sentence, and, and to this passage in Daniel chapter 7, this sentence is used by futurists as a basis for their postulation of three and one-half year, a three and one-half year tribulation period, when a so-called Antichrist will set up his kingdom after a so-called rapture. Some futurists call for a seven-year period tribulation. As I told you before, the futurist theory was dreamed up by a Spanish Jesuit priest by the name of Ribera around 1580 AD, and the teaching had never been heard of before that time. 
It has a long and sordid history, and I don't have the space here to go into much detail on the subject. But this portion of scripture, quoted immediately above, is one of the basic passages they use, out of context, to support their theory. By showing you the true historical meaning of the passage, I hope to drive a nail into the coffin of this doctrine so that it will stay dead for a long time. What could be more of a tribulation than 1,260 years and 100 million violent deaths, mostly of our own people? Some estimate as low as 60 million, but it is still a lot of people. This is the legacy of Justinian and his law code along with the universal church. Now, now, let me say before I go on with my own, a couple of my own comments in response to that, or I should say in addition to that, the Roman Catholic popes throughout the entire Middle Ages had asserted their authority over the kings of Europe, and they had been the instigation of many wars against kings who would not comply with their dictates. So, while I can't possibly produce the proof of 60 million or 100 million violent deaths here, what I can do is state that many of these images in prophecy, shallow Christians, and when I say shallow Christians, I mean Christians who don't actually study the scripture, but read it and try to come to their own conclusions, they could be deceived into thinking that the little horn of Daniel has to be the lifetime of one particular man who does all of these horrible things. But that's not how it should be interpreted, because very often prophecies in Daniel and the Revelation take many years, hundreds of years, even thousands of years to unfold. But the little horn is evident, and many of the other prophecies are evident in how they were initiated and how the process which the prophecy is actually describing comes to materialize and and to manifest itself in the world. So this little horn of Daniel chapter 7 is connected to Justinian in all the things which Justinian had instituted. However, those things which Justinian instituted set off a process of history that manifested itself over 1260 years. And it's still in the world today, but it doesn't have the authority which it had before the time of Napoleon. The papacy simply doesn't. It's a paper tiger today. It does not have the authority which it had before the time of Napoleon. Today, when bishops decide that homosexual marriage should not be accepted, Catholics that are homosexuals still go to church. And they don't care. They flaunt that. They don't care about it. Where in the Middle Ages, if you were a homosexual, and your bishop found that you were a homosexual, that you were a sodomite, which is the proper term, you would be drawn and quartered, tarred and feathered, and probably dead. And your body wouldn't even be buried. It would be thrown into the river 
or, or thrown over a bank somewhere because burial would be considered something for of which you are not worthy. So people, Christians today, don't understand that the, the Roman Catholic Church in, in the Middle Ages is not the Roman Catholic Church of, of today, that it did have absolute power over people. And when someone was declared to be a sinner or, or a heretic, they were liable to be burned at the stake and their dead cadavers just thrown into a pit somewhere, or not even that, just left out for the dogs. Yeah, the um, Pope and bishops are just a joke now, right? I mean, uh, most people, uh, unfortunately, they aren't even Christian, so they just laugh at them, and anything they say, uh, they won't listen to, right? But uh, yeah, as you said, um, I don't think people have any idea how much power uh, the churches had in those days, right, over an entire community that you had to go to church. No choice. You couldn't just live in a community and not be coming to church, right? People would get suspicious of you and wonder, you know, why not? You had to comply. You had to be part of um, going to church in the community, right, completely. Yes. Otherwise, you were an outcast. If you didn't go to church, people were suspicious of you. You would become an outcast. You would be rejected by the community. You would be put under the interdict by the bishop. If you were put under the interdict, we speak about the interdict powers of the Pope. And the Pope put entire nations. King John, the English King John was under the interdict. He was placed under the interdict by the Pope. Entire nations were placed under the interdict, and no other Roman Catholic nation would trade with the nation that was placed under the interdict. They would make war against them instead, if the Pope so commanded, and they would readily make war in order to stay in the good graces of the Pope themselves. And that happened during the Thirty Years' War. During the Thirty Years' War, the Popes brought the Swedes... And, and the French and the Spanish, all against the Germans, as well as Italians and other, other nations, all fought against the German Protestants. And the Thirty Years' War, after the time of the Reformation, was a significant source of those 60 million or 100 million deaths, where there were perhaps more than 8 million deaths in a war that was primarily instigated by the Jesuit Counter-Reformation and Roman Catholic desires to once again control Germany, and perhaps a third of Germany was decimated. A third of German churches and villages were destroyed completely in the Thirty Years' War. Perhaps half of the adult male population, I, I believe. I've read figures that estimated as high as half were, were of the war-age males, males that could go fight in battle, were killed in the Thirty Years' War. The local bishops also had the power of the interdict and could isolate and vilify individuals with that power. Now, I'm sure that sometimes it was used justly, perhaps of sodomites and adulterers and people like that, but I'm sure that sometimes it was also used for political means. 
So it, it's if you were put under the interdict, nobody in your community would sell you or trade with you or sell anything to you so that you wouldn't be able to work and you wouldn't be able to eat. You couldn't just go to another community in those days. It wasn't that easy to move from community to community. And it, it was a much smaller world than we have today. You couldn't simply go to another kingdom or to another principality. It was difficult to escape your local church. You had to comply if you wanted to live, or, or at least to live with any form of comfort. You had to comply. Today we have um, the... the <laughs> The vaccine squad, which is probably going to try to do that same thing. You have to comply with the medical establishment or you're going to be under the interdict, basically. The equivalent in modern terms. But now the popes are, are these um, progressive liberals and, and communists rather than that these Christian tyrants or these tyrants acting in the name of Christ. Yeah, uh, many people are going to be ostracized, right? Probably us as well, unfortunately. But uh, it has to happen, right? Just like in the Thirty Years' War to break away from the Pope, uh, we'll probably have to do it again, right? Absolutely. Clifton is still addressing heretics, people that we would consider heretics, in, in, in this paper. And for various reasons, I'm going to repeat just a few more, just a few more paragraphs from Clifton's paper, two short ones, and add some of my own notes, which I made back last year when I presented this. Clifton, under the title, Example of Lack of Insight on Daniel chapter 7, verses 20 to 26, he says, now that we have covered this prophecy of Daniel 7, where we established that Justinian certainly is the little horn and fulfilled Everything which Daniel says about that little horn, he says, let's take a look at some comments from the Bible Knowledge Commentary on this passage. While there are some positive contributions from the source, other positions are faulty, hampering understanding. As I quote an example here, compare it with the evidence. The amillenarian, amillenarian or amillennial view that the little horn has already appeared sometime in the past but since Christ's first advent is wrong because, and of course the Bible knowledge commentary is taking the futurist position, but let me say before we get into their reasons, futurism was contrived as a defense of the church against the reformers who understood that the church was the beast of Revelation chapter 13. The reformers understood that, and the church defended against it by concocting, I should say, bishops within the church defended against it by concocting futurism or preterism as methods of interpreting prophecy. One saying that all the prophecy was already fulfilled, so the Pope can't possibly be this beast. And another saying that 
all this prophecy is not going to happen until far off in the future, so the Pope cannot possibly be this beast. And they predominate Christian interpretation of prophecy to this very day, especially futurism, is predominant to this very day. So historicism, the reformers were historicists, as Christians should be, looking for historical fulfillments of prophecy in order to understand that the word of God is true, which it is. Historicists, historicists had been marginalized and practically forgotten within the church. The Protestants of today follow these Catholic church interpretations rather than their own reformers. Yeah, and it's it's always the Jews who come up with these theories, right? It's always them, and people have to realize that, right? And as you said, people are ashamed of um, their own reformers, right? The uh, founders of whatever denomination. They'd rather side with the Jews now. Absolutely, and they do. So, the reasons that Walvoord and Zuck give for this, and I'm sorry, this Bible knowledge commentary the reasons they give for this interpretation or this insistence that the little horn has not happened in the past. They say first that no such ruler has attained worldwide status. Then they say no such ruler has subdued three of ten kings who were ruling at once. They say no such ruler has persecuted Israel for three and a half years. And no such ruler has been destroyed forever by Christ's return. Nor could this little horn be the Roman Catholic papacy because the little horn is a king, not a pope. The papacy's power has not been limited to three and a half years. They're insisting on a literal interpretation of a time, times, and half a time as three and a half years. The papacy has not concentrated on persecuting the nation of Israel, and the papacy has not been destroyed by the return of Christ to earth. So now Clifton made another parenthetical remark, simply stating, this source hasn't the least idea who true Israel is. And Clifton more or less left it at that. But critiquing his paper, I added that this is the folly of interpreting prophecy through church doctrine as church doctrine is based on Judaized teachings, false premises, and false conclusions about Scripture. The interpretation of the series of kingdoms described in Daniel chapter 2 is concrete. It cannot be honestly interpreted as anything but the succession of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome to world hegemony without being twisted into a pretzel. And so it is in Daniel chapter 7. We are told by Daniel himself that these beasts were kingdoms that would succeed one another, and the beasts are described as having features which can indeed be identified with the respective kingdoms with which they should be associated. Then we are told by Daniel himself that this little horn would be a king that would arise after them, who would make war against and prevail over the people of God until the coming of the Ancient of Days. Well, 
I'll add now that that doesn't necessarily have to be a shooting war. War is not always conducted in battle. There are many ways to conduct a war. Today, we have war conducted against us by this establishment of this community of international banks and corporations, and they're ruling over us today rather than our own elected politicians. Our politicians are subservient to the corporations and the bankers. They've been waging this war against us. They've been flooding us with immigrants. And we're losing because we don't even see that it is a war. That's another story. So interpreting Daniel chapters 2 and 7 together, we must look for a ruling authority that arose out of the head of that last of the four beasts, the Roman Empire, and which prevailed over the same people who had caused that empire to fall, as they are described in Daniel chapter 2, as the people of the Stone Kingdom. Daniel chapters 2 and 7 cannot be independently interpreted in ways that force them to conflict with one another, as if the Word of God is not consistent. Therefore, the saints of the Most High must be another identifier for the people of the Stone Kingdom. The Roman Catholic Church, having its authority encoded into the laws, which came directly from Justinian, and Justinian also having fulfilled other aspects of the description of the little horn in his own lifetime, in that the identification of this authority is revealed in a manner which cannot be plausibly denied, and it also becomes evident that the modern Jews who still deny Christ, and whom Christ had told were not his sheep, they cannot possibly be identified as the saints of the Most High. So if we do not start with our own conclusion and try to force the word of God to suit our doctrine, then the prophecy itself will lead us to a correct conclusion, and we must admit that both the church doctrine and the Jews are all wrong. I don't know if we, if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, it just shows you that if um, any of your basic foundations are wrong as you build up, uh, you know, and study the Bible, you're never going to get it. You have to know who are the children of God and who's the enemy. And only then can you start to put it together, right? If not, it, it, you're never going to understand what's going on in the world, right? Absolutely. And, and and it's very plain that the scripture basically interprets itself for us. That these that this metallic monster that the book of Bezar saw that he was the head of are, are those four kingdoms, those four kingdoms which became empires that ruled over wheresoever the children of men dwell, and that that is the same and has all the same attributes as Daniel's four beasts in Daniel chapter 7, which accomplish the same exact objectives that we see in in the metallic monster of Daniel chapter 2. So those four beasts are Daniel's metallic image with, with the head of gold and, and the arms of silver and the trunk of brass or bronze and, and the legs of iron that were partially clay. That should be, that cannot be plausibly denied. And Daniel chapter 7 takes that same concept and carries it further out in time to the second entity 
which arises and prevails over the saints of the Most High for three and a half times. And that clearly, it's right in his own laws, Justinian's own laws, that clearly refers to the power which Justinian's laws granted the Bishop of Rome who with that power grew into the second beast of Revelation, chapter 13, and fulfilled everything that Daniel said that the little horn would fulfill in Daniel chapter 7. So before beginning our discussion of Revelation chapter 13, where this culminates, I'll quote just one more of my comments from the earlier paper in response to Clifton's paper. There were early reformers who understood from Daniel and the Revelation that the papacy certainly was the beast which fulfilled those prophecies. And there is much artwork surviving from that time containing propaganda which depicts that very thing. Some of that artwork is already employed in older papers and presentations at Christogenia. They confused the beast for the Antichrist, which was an error but the association of the papacy with the beast entity in these scriptures is true. However, I had said those things in reference to the second beast in Revelations chapter 13. Now we shall read of the chapter. The, now we shall read the portion of the chapter describing the first beast. And I'll read this from the Christogenian New Testament. From Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast ascending from out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and that evokes visions of Daniel chapter 7. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and its feet as a bear's, and its mouth as a lion's mouth. And the dragon had given to it his power and his throne and great authority. So the beast which John saw here has the combined attributes of three of the four beasts in Daniel's vision of the series of four empires described in Daniel chapter 7, the bear, the leopard, and the lion. The fourth attribute which is missing here is that of the man. However, this beast is clearly an institution of men. These similarities are more than sufficient to associate these two visions and to interpret them as describing the same series of beast empires. So continuing with the chapter, and one from among its heads as if having been slaughtered unto death. Yet the wound of its death had been healed, and the whole earth marveled after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, because he had given authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to make war with it? We believe that the wound in the head represents the fall of Rome, and we shall discuss that further where it is mentioned in connection with the second beast later in this chapter. Here we also have a further revelation that it is the dragon which had given its power to these beasts. And the dragon elsewhere in scripture represents the powers of evil which is found in the enemies of God. 
If we studied the dragon, it could be made evident that it is the mercantile power of the Edomite Jew. And the enemies of God would attempt to destroy the Christ child, a role in history fulfilled by the Edomite Jew, Herod, which is identified as a dragon in Revelation chapter 12. So the dragon is the Jewish power behind and, and the mercantile power, which had predominantly belonged to Jews throughout the Christian era, behind this series of empires. Because the merchants in the ancient world were propping up and supporting kings, just like the merchants, the international merchants and bankers do today in our world. There's nothing new under the sun. It, it's history, the patterns of history repeat themselves over and over and over again. Yeah, we talk about unfamous or in power today. They have to bow to the Jew and go to them and they will reward them and give them their position or their fame, right? It's exactly the same today. Exactly. It never changes. Okay. Continuing with Revelation chapter 13 from verse 5. And there had been given to it a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Now this is exactly how Daniel describes this little horn in Daniel chapter 7. So we see all of these correlations with Daniel chapter 7. And the ancient emperors, especially the Roman emperors, had also spoken great things and blasphemies. They declared for themselves to be gods. They were worshipped in their own temples. Never mind all of the more mundane things that they spoke against the God of creation in all of their edicts. And there had been given to it a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And there had been given to it authority to act for 40 and two months. Now, 42 months is 1260 years or days. And it opened its mouth in blasphemies towards Yahweh to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, those dwelling in heaven. So the 42 months is equivalent to 1260 days. And we would assert that they represent 1260 years for which this first beast would rule over at least most of the Adamic world, wheresoever the children of men dwell. There are prophecies, such as in the books of Numbers and Ezekiel, that inform us that a day represents a prophetic year. So in Ezekiel chapter 4, for example, the prophet was told to accomplish a certain task for a fixed period of days, and Yahweh said, I have appointed thee each day for a year. While the calendar of God is more perfect than the calendars of men, if we count 476 AD as the fall of Rome, going back 1260 years, we arrive at around 785 BC. At this time, Adad-Nirari III was king of Assyria, and it was he who was the first foreign emperor who had begun to oppress the ancient kingdom of Israel, even placing Israel under tribute during the rule of Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, not to be confused with Jehoash, also spelled Joash, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah. But if we count 536 AD as the beginning of the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, 
Going back 1260 years, we arrive at 724 BC, which is very close to the date of the fall of Samaria to Sargon II. But if this first beast represents Rome alone as being a composite, yet surpassing all of the empires which had preceded it, then 724 BC approaches the legendary founding of the city, which was popularly esteemed to be around 750 BC. So, reckoning this beast, we see that it ruled for a period very close to the prophesied 42 months in the estimation of men, because our calendars are far from perfect. Our records are far from perfect. That it blasphemed Yahweh the God of Israel, is a subject of Paul of Tarsus's epistle to the Romans in Romans chapter 1. So, Bill, sorry, um, you're going from when Rome's founded to the fall of Rome being 1260 years. Uh, am I right there, sorry? Well, it's not quite 1260 years according to our modern calendars and chronologies. It's almost 1260 years. It's about 26 years short at 476 BC. But 1260 years is close enough to the duration of Rome. Rome as a kingdom, and then as a republic, and then as an empire. The course of its entire history is very close to 1260 years. And 476, Rome's fall in 476 BC is even a rather arbitrary date. Or in 536 AD, when the Pope prevailed over Justinian. Even that's an arbitrary date. And Justinian was a Roman emperor, even though he was the emperor of only half of the former empire. So continuing with Revelation chapter 13 and the description of this first beast. And there had been given to it to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority had been given to it over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. So here we see that this first beast is also the beast of four empires in the vision of Daniel chapter 2, since only one series of empires ever ruled wheresoever the children of men dwell in ancient history. Just as the world was limited to the white world of antiquity in Daniel, so it is in Revelation, since this beast only ruled over white nations, or nations on the fringes of society that were formerly white, and that were already in the process of becoming non-white, such as Ethiopia and Egypt. So once again, in verse 8, And all those dwelling upon the earth worshipped it, of whom their names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, who had been slaughtered from the foundation of society. If one has an ear, he must hear. If one is for captivity, into captivity he goes. If one is to be slain by the sword, he is to be slain by the sword. Thus is the patience and the faith of the saints. And while we will not comment on other aspects of this prophecy here, all of this certainly also describes the Roman Empire. Furthermore, there is no legitimate interpretation of this prophecy which is not Eurocentric, a term which in ancient times should include the Levant and Mesopotamia, 
They were peopled by tribes which we can identify with Europe today, which once again proves that the Israelites were white. We cannot imagine at this point, in the words of Christ, that Jews would be called saints of the Most High, as they had completely rejected him, and he denied them that status, telling them that they denied him, or that they rejected him, because they were not his sheep, and that they were not of God. So for those reasons, as it is described in the Gospel of Accounts, he had fully expected them to reject him. Christians don't even read the biblical statements concerning the Jews and the statements of Christ concerning the Jews. They weren't his sheep in the first place. That's why they didn't believe him. So now proceeding with the chapter, we see John describe a second beast, which emerges from the head of the first beast. And that's the little horn of Daniel chapter 11, because a horn comes out of the head. Daniel's horn came out of the head of a portion of the fourth beast, which is the Roman Empire. And now we see the second beast emerge from the head of the first. So while the allegories are not precisely the same, they are essentially saying, the same thing. So is verse 11. And I saw another beast ascending from out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, and spoke as a dragon. Very similar to the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. And all the authority of the first beast it practices in his presence, because the popes were the new emperors after the time of Justinian. And the Roman Empire, or the portions of it, were still there. And the Catholic hierarchy basically became the new Roman hierarchy. It just had different names. And all the authority of the first beast it practices in his presence. And it makes the earth and those dwelling in it that they shall worship the first beast who had been healed from the wound of its head. Of its death, I'm sorry. So we see that this second beast would have all of the power, pomp, majesty that the, the earlier beast had. And that describing the Roman Empire that the second beast was simply a copy of the Roman Empire under the guise of religion and the labels which it used were quote-unquote Christian rather than the old Roman political labels. While the number, and I'm going off on a slight digression here, while the number is not quite as low as I remembered it, in an extemporaneous digression here recently. After the Goths had taken Rome, according to the contemporary historian Procopius, and when I say the contemporary historian Procopius, I'm referring to the fact that Procopius, being a secretary to Belisarius, the Byzantine general, lived at the time when this happened, and actually I witnessed many aspects of the Gothic presence in Italy and the fall of Rome 
and its recovery by the Byzantine by the Byzantines when their armies had defeated the Goths in Italy, the, the Gothic kings Totila and Vitiges. So according to the contemporary historian Procopius, the city was left practically deserted once it had fallen. And, and I quote, among the common people, only 500 men had been left throughout the whole city, for all the rest of the population were gone. But later, even many of those men were slain, citing Joe Procopius's History of the Wars, Book 7, Chapter 20. So Rome at this time certainly did appear to be dead, and this is certainly the wounding of one of the heads, which, much like the toes of the beast of Daniel chapter 2, or the ten horns in Daniel chapter 7, we may interpret as representing the kingdoms which emerged after the empire fell apart. So once more, continuing to Revelation chapter 13, from verse 13, And he shall make a great sign, that even fire would be made from heaven to descend to earth before men. And he would deceive those dwelling upon the earth through the signs which had been given to him to make in the presence of the beast, saying to those dwelling upon the earth to make an image for the beast who has the wound of the sword and has lived. So even though it's two beasts or a series of beasts and a little horn which sprung up from those beasts, in reality, it's all the same beast all over again. The papacy, which ruled Europe for 1260 years after the fall of the Roman Empire, certainly is the second beast of Revelation chapter 13, and it is described in much the same way that the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 is described. For example, speaking like a dragon with the mouth of a lamb, Daniel said that the little horn shall speak great words against the Most High. But the Pope spoke their own blasphemies under the pretense of being the, the representatives of Christ the Lamb. The little horn also had all of the authority which the ancient emperors had, and it practiced that authority to keep the people of Europe in complete subjection to Rome, to the Church of Rome. They made fire come down upon the earth by making war against the saints, and the image of the beast is all of the pomp and majesty and regal appearance of the papacy, which the people worshipped just as their forebears had worshipped the pomp and majesty of the emperors of ancient Rome. So, unless you have anything to add, I'll continue with yeah, Revelation chapter say, 13. No one could have predicted that Rome, coming from nothing, would suddenly rule the world again, right? It's, it's just like when we spoke of how originally Rome was just a small town and suddenly it rules the world. Well, it does it twice, doesn't it? Uh, it collapses and then somehow uh, comes to control every uh, Christian kingdom in, in the world at that time, right? Absolutely. And, and, and it is amazing that the Goths had reduced Rome, according to Procopius, to perhaps 500 men. And then at least that there was one episode that Procopius describes where a lot of those men had fled 
to, I believe it was St. Peter's Basilica, the church at St. Peter's, as it was at that time. It was probably not the, the monument that it is today. But they fled to St. Peter's seeking refuge. And I believe Procopius said 80 of them, I'm not sure, were killed by the Goths in the church at St. Peter's, the church building at St. Peter's in Rome. So even a great number of those 500 men were killed in, in the time subsequent to Procopius's statement. And he describes that a little further on in the same chapter. So the population of Rome, which, which if I remember correctly, was probably about 2 million. Yeah, that's correct. It was probably about 2 million, was reduced to 500 people, and then perhaps 10% of them were killed or more probably closer to 20%, were killed by the Goths. So if that's not the head that, that died, and 50, 60, 60 years later, counting that is happening in 476 AD, roughly, the fall of Rome to Goths, and, and 60 years later, Justinian, the Bishop of Rome who's a Roman, is in a position where Justinian can appoint him by a decree of law to be the head of all the Christian bishops in his empire, then Rome certainly was miraculously revived in those 60 years and came in a short time to rule over all of the bishops and kings of Europe. Yeah. Uh, and Bill, there would have been a lot of, um, you know, Romans who had moved to Gaul or France and Britain and, you know, across Europe, right? So there's many uh, Romans with us still today, right? Uh, at least from that bloodline, right? Yes, absolutely. True Romans. All of the Italians of today are not true Romans. But there were many true Romans throughout the empire, yes. So there are many true Romans with us today. Many of us are, I'm sure that probably most of us, if we're from France or Western Germany or England, especially, and also Iberia and, and other places that Rome had ruled over, are at least partially descended from Romans, because Roman citizens remained throughout those nations that the Germanic tribes had conquered. And they weren't exterminated by the Germanic tribes. The Gauls were never exterminated by, by the Franks or, or the Goths or the other tribes, Germanic tribes, that came to inhabit parts of modern France. They, the, the Germanic tribes adopted the language of the Gauls. That's why we have French as a Romance language. It's not a Germanic language. So they mingled together with the former citizens of the Roman Empire. And Bede attested that same thing in his ecclesiastical history in Britain. That the Saxons and, and the Angles moved in and, and created their own towns and villages not far from the British towns and villages. 
So today, they're all English to us, right? But in, in the 8th century, Bede's still distinguished from the Bretons and the Saxons. And I don't know how you could determine if your ancestors are from a Br British village or from a Saxon village. I don't know. I don't know if you can determine that, right? Yeah, and it's kind of getting that way uh, in, in America, right, where people still can say, oh, I'm part British, part Swedish, part French or whatever, but slowly it's getting murkier, murkier, right? I have met an astounding number of Americans who are apparently white and do not know their own ethnic heritage. You might be able to guess from their last names, but they don't even know the names of their grandparents or great-grandparents. We've been completely removed from any care of our own heritage or origins. So I'm an exception because I do know most of my ancestors, but my great-grandmother, my, my father's father's mother, came from Baden, and her last name was Braun, and that's about all I know of her. I don't know much more of her. And my Irish grandmother came from Roscommon in Ireland, her family. And their last name is Cronin. I don't know anything more of her. Nothing. So even some of our ancestors, when we do know their names, the names are so common that it's hard to pin down exactly what family or village they came from in Europe. So I, I'm fortunate to know what I do, but I've met an astounding number of young American men and women that don't even know that. They don't know their grandmother's maiden name or their great-grandfather's name or, or anything about their families. So if you ask them, you know, what, where, where did you come in Europe or, or what are you, German, Irish, English? They don't know. Very often they don't know. They don't have a clue too often. So that's the blindness of Israel, and and that will be the subject of one of these future proofs, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, it, and it's all Jews who, um, you know, basically make it sound as though it's evil looking into history or white heritage, that that's supremacist and afraid to look into it. So they think they're evil if they do that. Right. I don't think any of them should understand why they should care. And being raised on television and, and in these Marxist public schools, they don't even know why they should care what they are. They don't, they, they, all sense of identity has been erased from their minds or it was never programmed into them in the first place. It was different when I was a child and I was basically the first generation of my own family that was raised entirely on television right my parents didn't have television they came from poor families they usually didn't have television and and they watched it as adults but they didn't watch it constantly growing up the way a lot of people of my generation did that were born in 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 the late 50s or early 60s so I think that my generation was the first generation where television permeated the household and it was always there. Even though we still spent a lot of time doing outdoor activities, by the time my children were raised, uh, 
they spent probably two or three times more of their time with television than I did as a as a boy. So it got progressively worse and worse. Today, children are entirely educated on television. Yeah, sadly, I see that all the time where parents just plant their kid in front of the TV and then just leave them because they want to get on with their own thing, right? They don't want to spend time. So, so essentially, kids are raised by the TV, right? It's an electronic rabbi, which serves as an electronic babysitter. Okay, Revelation chapter 13, verse 15. And there had been given to him to give a spirit to the image of the beast, in order that the image of the beast may also speak and may make it that as many as would not worship the image of the beast would be slain. Now, if that doesn't describe the Reformation, I don't know what does. The Pope certainly did have so many so-called heretics and many of their own enemies slain, sometimes in horrible ways. The popes often created wars, using one European kingdom against another when certain kingdoms would not comply with their demands. Now to finish reading the chapter, actually, short of one verse, and it makes all, those who are small and those who are great and those who are wealthy and those who are poor, and those who are free, and those who are slaves, that they have given to them an engraved mark upon their right hand or upon their forehead, and in order that one would not be able to buy or to sell if he has not the mark, the name of the beast or the number of his name, and we will stop short right there. The mark of the beast is not necessarily a physical mark. It's certainly not a physical mark. Rather, it should be compared to what Yahweh had told the children of Israel in relation to the commandments of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I'll read from verse 8. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. Similar things were said to the children of Israel of the events of the Exodus in Exodus chapter 13, and then of the law again in Deuteronomy chapter 11, and I'll read Deuteronomy 11 from verse 18. Therefore shall you lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul, and bind them for a sign upon your hand, that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. Frontlets between the eyes are upon the forehead, right? So here we have the hand and the forehead. And it's not that the children of Israel should take copies of the law and attach them to their hands and their foreheads. Rather, they should live by the law. Instead of here, where this mark of the beast compels them to live by the Pope, by the power of the Roman Catholic Church, in spite of the law. Under the power of the interdict, the popes were even able to isolate kings and entire kingdoms as sinners so that they could neither buy nor sell and were left hopeless until they conceded to the authority of the popes. So obedience to the pope was the mark of the beast and men had no choice but to accept it or face certain poverty and even death. 
Local bishops, as I've explained, had the power to place their own citizens under interdict so that they could not buy or sell or engage in the social and ecclesiastical affairs of their own communities. So we read in the very last verse of Revelation chapter 13. Thus is wisdom. He having a mind must calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. And, of course, as we have pointed out in the past, in the Latin alphanumeric system, the letters of the words, vicarious filius Dei, which was a title that the popes had used, meaning Vicar of the Son of God, which is a vicar is a replacement, which is replacement for the Son of God. The letters of those words in the Latin alphabet, in the Latin spelling of the term, add up to 666. And that's complete blasphemy, right, to say replacement of Christ. Well, Christ is a living God. He does not need a vicar or replacement on earth. And that is a complete blasphemy. And it's something that you do not see in apostolic Christianity. There is no replacement for Christ on earth. Christ is here in the form of the Holy Spirit. And he will return again physically as he had promised. Only dead men need replacements. Yeah, Bill, I was just, I quickly looked up um, that um, King John, how, how you said uh, he was isolated by the Pope, and, and I, it was astonishing because he wanted to have his own archbishop, not the one the Pope, um, you know, uh, put in, and for that, the entire country was interdicted. So, so just because he wanted his own archbishop, the entire country got isolated just for that. It, it shows you how the popes wanted absolute power. And, and also um, the, the Magma Carta, the pope rejected it because he thought it gave too much freedom and, and free will uh, from England. And it undermined the uh, authority of the pope. Right, right there it shows you uh, how power hungry the, the papacy had become, right? Absolutely. That these things that we describe are real. I, I mean, that's history. And and if, if you, ah, I, I don't want to sound obnoxious, but if you can't see this when it's clearly spelled out, not by us, but by the prophets, if you can't study history and see this, then perhaps you're not written in the book of the life of the Lamb. I, I'm, I mean, what the, what the hell? This is so clear in history. That if we come to grips with reality, it should be easy to see if we're willing to set aside our own emotional connections to, to the Catholic Church or to any of these other institutions and, and look at history and scripture objectively. These prophecies are the clearest, surest interpretations that these interpretations are the clearest surest interpretations of prophecy which can possibly be achieved in my opinion that daniel and the revelation together spell this out so clearly i don't know how it could be denied once you understand the history anybody who denies it simply has some other political agenda the yes more they don't want to accept it the prophecies also make it clear that the entire revelation is Eurocentric, as well as Daniel. 
is what we would call Eurocentric, because it's dealing with the people of Europe and the governments of Europe. And when I say Europe in that sense, I mean to include the, the white portions of Anatolia and the Near East that were also affected by and, and are a part of our race originally and were affected by this history. That would also include the northern coast of Africa, which was European up until the time of the Arabic conquests, right? The Islamic conquests. So Europe, in that sense, is, a, is an entire culture, just as I, I would think that Europe, in today's sense, would include America, Australia, New Zealand, everywhere where Europeans live, to use that term. We should call it Israel or Christendom. Because they're true Christians. Yeah, the the Bible is always it always follows where the race of Israel is, right? And you could use Europe or Eurocentric, but it's always the race and the family, right? You can only figure that out if you actually believe the words of the prophets, and we have the history to support our interpretation of those words. We've displayed it throughout these hundred proofs. Absolutely. The Bible is only concerned with the race of the children of Israel, with one man's family, and that's Abraham's family. But the blessings were only passed down through Jacob, and Esau was was permanently excluded. Of course, the Esau today is found in Jewry, as the Jews themselves, as their own rabbis, have admitted on more than one occasion. Of course, Negroes would never fit into this picture. There's nothing in the history of blacks that could ever be interpreted as fulfilling this. And in fact, do blacks have history? <laughs> when do they start recording history? I don't think they know anything about themselves beyond yesterday. They have some legends and some traditions in Africa, I'm sure. But they're only legends and traditions. They have no recorded history except the history that the white man has recorded for them. Yeah, and we invented languages for them, you know, you know and everything. Uh, you know, listened to the noises they make and, and tried to form letters and words for them. And, and yeah, in, in the Bible, they would just be considered beast, right? And, and, and that it's only in the real past few centuries uh, where Jews have deliberately put them in our countries if we even noticed them, right? Uh, I believe we went over this last podcast as well. Well, well, right, absolutely. Now, notice that there's no collection of ancient literature promoted detailing black history during Black History Month. <laughs> you don't need a whole month to read all of the black history that's available. Okay. If you want to understand black history as things that existed or, or that are written by blacks about the period before the white man started writing his history for him. Wow. Yeah, we could t digress about this and joke about it forever because it would be endless. Thank you for being here. No worries, Bill. Always a pleasure. Thanks, family. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European race, that the family of Abraham, right? Absolutely. Praise Yahweh. Good night.